Well, good morning, church. You'll turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 15. We're not going to be there long, but that's where we're going to begin our service this morning. Genesis chapter 15. And hear this word from the Lord, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no seed, behold, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but the one who came forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this study. We thank you what we've done for the last 13 weeks and going into your word, going back to Genesis, reading it not only as the history of our universe, not only as the history of your people, not only as the history of our salvation, but as you have revealed yourself to us. So this morning, as we look back and also in a sense look forward, I pray that you will give us understanding through your spirit. You will give us hearts and minds that are continually being transformed. Even as we go back to the same stories, go back to the same words, go back to the same book that we've read countless times if we've known you for any period. And Lord, I pray that this morning will be a blessing to you, that you will be glorified in all that is said and all that is done. We ask this in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. So, let me ask you a very simple question. How do you read the book of Genesis? This is rhetorical. This is not like the catechism. Don't raise your hand. How do you read the book of Genesis? We start at the beginning, and you kind of work your way through it. Well, that's true. But there's multiple ways to read the book of Genesis. There's multiple ways to come to any book of the Bible. I think the most basic and simple way to, to kind of show that there's different, different ways to read Genesis is the way that we have read it. We have read the book of Genesis, and the way that we have studied it has kind of been a study that we've looked at the forest. Sure, we, we have gone in in certain weeks, and we've, we've really drilled down into particular words or phrases or verses, but by and large, as we've focused on Genesis 1 through 3, and then we did look at two other parts of the text, we've looked at kind of this broad, sweeping themes of Genesis, particularly as it relates to the presuppositional truths, the foundational things that are communicated in Genesis 1 through 3 and then throughout the book that are then reinforced as you go throughout the entirety of Scripture that define at a most fundamental level who we are, who God is. So that's one way that you could read Genesis. 
Now, another way you could read Genesis is kind of like the way that we did First Peter, our previous book study, which is not necessarily looking at the forest, but looking at the trees, verse by verse, at a very particulate level, going through and understanding exactly what is being said in each verse. Both of these are perfectly fine approaches. Both of these are what we would call exegetical approaches, where we go to the Word and we allow the Word to determine how we study it and what we learn from it. But there's other ways that we could read Genesis, things that we hadn't even touched on in a significant level as we have gone through this study in these last 12 or 13 weeks. We could look at some of the major themes. There is a theme of kingship that runs through Genesis a theme that is established as we see God, the sovereign king of all creation in Genesis 1, that continues on as we see kings that seek to fulfill their mandate to him, but fail in doing so over and over again. We see the theme of the the seed of the woman. That is something that we were introduced to as we studied Genesis chapter 3. That is a theme that continues on through the rest of the book of Genesis. There's other themes we could pick up, other things that we could look at, And this is one of the exciting things as we come to the Word of God, that no matter how many times we go through it, if we come to a book of the Bible, something as familiar, something as flannel graph familiar as Genesis, that if we come to it with open hearts, open minds, leaning on the Spirit, leaning on the body of Christ, at the countless witnesses that we have before us, that every time we come to something as familiar as the book of Genesis, as Genesis 1 through 3, that we are able to glean truths that we have not seen or not seen that particular facet of that beautiful gemstone that is the revelation of God before us. And so we are never done studying. We are never done reading because we are never done allowing the Lord to transform us renew our minds, and conform us to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, that we see more and more as we turn to his word. So let that be an encouragement to you. Let let it be an encouragement that you are never going to be too old for Genesis. You're never going to be too educated for Genesis. And you are certainly never going to be so emotionally mature that you don't have time for the book of Genesis. So this morning, we're going to look at three things that are revealed to us in Genesis. We're going to see how God reveals himself. We're going to see how God reveals us, not the best grammar, but I think you know what I mean, and how God reveals salvation. Now, you might say, we're going to be going to some places in today's, in today's sermon that aren't in Genesis, but in an embryonic stage, we see them in Genesis. In seed form, we see them in Genesis. We see the the beginnings of of a plant that comes to fruition in the New Testament, comes to fruition in the life of Christ, comes to fruition in the life of the church, that these things that we see are seeds that are planted by God in Genesis that are then watered throughout the course of biblical revelation, and we see come to fruition. And for the vast majority of these things, we see this embryonic or seed form in Genesis, and because of where we find ourselves in space, in time, in history, in redemption, we are experiencing these things in fullness. So although, as we just read in Genesis chapter 15, Abram heard these promises, and he received them, and he believed God on the anticipation of something happening, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, we have the benefit of looking backwards 
and seeing these promises fulfilled. And when we believe, it is reckoned to us as righteousness. So we'll go through these three things, these three primary things that God reveals to us in Genesis, and we'll look at them in, for the sake of review, but also for summation, seeing how some of these trees come together to create this beautiful forest that God has given us in Genesis. So the first thing that we see in Genesis is that God reveals himself. This is how we started, and this is how we ought to start. This is how Christians ought to come to the Bible. In those very first words, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We cannot so quickly run to tell me about the heavens, tell me about the earth, and get so excited about that that we neglect to understand and appreciate. And as John so eloquently pointed out as we, as we worshiped earlier this morning through song, just the overwhelming nature of who God is, how great thou art. If we think about how great nature is, and we neglect to understand how great God is, we've missed the point. Even if we think about nature as the creation of God. And so we understand that God is. He reveals himself and that he is. That he is self-existent. That he is not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon space. He is not dependent upon time. He is not dependent upon all of the things that we are dependent upon every moment of our life as both biological and spiritual entities to exist. He is, and he is wholly self-existent. This is the first thing that we have to understand when we come to the word of God. One of the great errors of modernity and one of the great errors of the last few hundred years is making scripture, and I said this a couple weeks ago, anthropocentric. It's a fancy way of saying that we put ourselves in the middle of it. This is a love letter about us. This is a story about us. This is a story of human history. This is a story about people. I read myself into the Bible. In doing so, we are neglecting the very first things that we encounter when we come to the Word of God. God is at the center. We must read Scripture and read it about God. He is the one that we have to have in our minds. He is the one that we have to focus on, both in that imminent sense and also that transcendent sense. And we see that revealed, that he reveals to us that he is holy. He is holy. God is set apart completely. Now, this is not uh, to the extent that some maintain, which is that he is unknowable. And sometimes we use that phrase colloquially, that God is unknowable. Well, he's unknowable in the sense that we cannot understand the fullness of his depth and his breadth and his width. And even there, I just use dimensional language to try to communicate the grandeur of God. But God has no dimension. God has no limitations. God has no physical presence, particularly as we talk about the Father. He is immeasurable. He is incalculable. But he is not unknowable. And we know him because he has revealed himself to us. He is imminent. Once again, and I just love the way that John introduced how great thou art to us this morning, that we need to think of it in terms of unknowable in the sense that it is so big that we cannot wrap our minds around him, that once we grasp one aspect of his being, that we, are un, we, we must also be drawn into the fact that there are countless other things that if we are focusing on one aspect, we are unable to even begin to grasp other aspects of who he is. He is set apart. He is holy. He is transcendent. But he's also imminent. He's close. 
This is actually revealed in what we talked about when we see that there's the name El when talking about God, that, that he is the God, but he also reveals himself, and he see, we see this in Genesis chapter 2 when he is referred to as Yahweh, the covenant God, the special God that was, that was revealed to Adam, to his descendants, and was given to the nation of Israel, this special name. So he is transcendent, he is the God, but he is also the covenant God, this relationship God, this God who characterizes himself and his relationship with his people by that wonderful word that we see translated as loving kindness. This is the nature of the imminent close God who is revealed to us in Genesis. We actually see a picture of this in Genesis 2. He is holy. He, it says in Genesis 2, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work which God had created in making it. In the Sabbath, in this one in seven, in this rest, in this, this beginning of this concept of setting apart things for God, God shows that he is holy enough that he is able to sanctify other things and declare other things holy, but he also gives us a pattern in our finitude, in our limits, in our smallness, in the fact that we are unholy, that we have a pattern to emulate where we are able to set apart a day. We're able to set apart our, our tithes and our offerings. We're able to set apart ourselves, as, as the Apostle Paul writes, in that it is our only reasonable sacrifice that we present our bodies. We present ourselves as something holy. So we see the perfection of holy, and we then can emulate that in ways that he has given us to do so. So he reveals himself that he is, that he is self-existent, that he is holy, and he also reveals that he is gracious. When does grace appear in Scripture? This is a wonderful question. This is certainly not a hypothetical, but when does grace appear? Does grace appear at the cross? Grace certainly is made manifest at the cross in a very dramatic, the most dramatic way, but where do we see grace first appear in Scripture. Not the word grace, mind you, but the concept of grace. Where do we see God being gracious? Genesis chapter 2, once more, in verses 8 and 9, it says, And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is gracious even before the cross, even before sin, in that he gives his creation all that it needs, especially himself. Consider those words again that I just read from Genesis chapter 2. He caused the, to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance. Did man deserve pretty trees. Do we deserve pretty trees? Do we deserve the beauty that is really starting to unfold? And I can see it even through the window now, and particularly dry places, and with all the rain we've had, it's surprising we have some dry places. We're starting to see the bouquet of colors that is going to just explode across New England in the coming weeks and months. It's a wonderful thing. It's something that is good and that we enjoy. It is something that is desirable. People come here from other places. These roads are going to be congested as people come to pick apples and peep at leaves. Do we deserve it? Do we deserve it in our fallenness? Certainly not, but do we deserve it 
simply because God could have given us pellets, Jetson-style pellets that give us the nutrition that we need to survive. Even in the nature of the creation, what is good and what is beautiful, we see God's grace to us. And so often we become almost Gnostic in our understanding of God's grace and God's goodness, where we say, all that really matters is my salvation. And we neglect to see what is made plain and evident and clear in Scripture and is even introduced in the first two chapters of God's Word that says that the nature of creation is a demonstration of God's grace giving us more than we deserve. He said it's also good for food. I'm not sure what your plans are. I'm not sure this morning if this is triggering to talk about tasty food. But the very fact that food is delicious and that we enjoy it and that we look forward to it and that God makes it central to the means of grace by which he nourishes us, yes, through his word in a spiritual sense, but also in, his, in the tangible things of the cup and of the bread in a physical sense, he nourishes us. God is gracious. He gives them the tree of life. He, they needed that. Adam and Eve were not created perfect. They, were, they needed the nourishment of the trees and of the normal means by which he nourished them. And also this tree of life was something that they would need to perpetuate their lives. It was a gracious gift of God. So in Genesis, God reveals himself. He reveals that he is, that he's self-existent. He reveals that he is holy. He is set apart. There's a creator-creation distinction. And he reveals that he is a gracious God. And we get all of these things before sin enters the world. So God reveals himself in Genesis. And secondly, in Genesis, God reveals us. God reveals us to ourselves. God reveals humanity to mankind. God reveals man to man. Because this is one of the essential things that we must understand about what it means to be man, what it means to be human, what it means to be a created person, is that we are unable to know ourselves. You can pick up, and you know, you've got time tomorrow because it's a holiday, pick up any philosophical tome. And what is it primarily concerned with? Understanding yourself. Who are we? Why are we here? That's what uh, Ross Perot's vice president candidate said. Who am I? Why am I here? Anyway, that was edifying. We, we, we are concerned with this idea of who we are. What's the purpose? What is the meaning of life? And has anyone figured it out yet? No one's figured it out yet. And there's still philosophy departments that are doing decent work and all over the universities across this land and across this globe that are trying to answer this question. And oftentimes, they're simply regurgitating tired arguments that have fallen out of favor over and over again. But where do we find our meaning? Where do we find our purpose? What do we find the chief end of man? We see it articulated in the confessions but we see it in its fullness in the Word of God. And the first thing that we have to understand about ourselves is that we cannot define meaning for ourselves. We cannot define purpose for ourselves. We cannot define our chief end for ourselves, that these things have to be given to us because we did not create ourselves. 
If you create something, if you make a widget, if you make a device, if you bake something, then you are the one who determines its purpose, its meaning, its value. You are the one who says, I created this and this is its purpose. The widget does not define itself. The creator, the manufacturer, the artisan, the designer, the engineer is the one who declares the purpose of that thing. And when God reveals us, in his word, he reveals that we are created. We are not created by a long series of random chance and random events. We are not created because, certainly not, of our own wisdom or our own uh, uh, being clever. We are created by God. And God created, it says in Genesis 1.27, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is who we are. We are created. Three times in one verse, lest anyone be confused as to where man came from, God makes it clear in the opening pages of his revealed word to his people that it was God that created. And he created them in his image. And we talked about that, this essential thing of understanding that God made a being that would do work like God does. This is part of the mandate that we talked about, and we'll talk about again in a minute. Inasmuch as God create and formed and, and organized, he wanted his people to do the same thing. And he created them male and female. It's definitional. It's not a mistake. It is not a biological adaptation for the procreation of our species. These things are essential, baked into the cake and literally structured into the DNA of who we are. There's purpose there's meaning, there's value in this. This is the positive proclamation of something like gender that Genesis approaches in the beginning chapters that we have, unfortunately, as a culture and as a world, lost sight of. But it's a positive thing. It's a good thing, again, for the purpose of procreation, but also for reflecting, as the Apostle Paul will get to in a few hundred years, a few thousand years from where we are in Genesis, but we have the benefit of looking backwards and seeing that in male and in female, when they come together, as we see in Genesis 1 through 2, there is a mystery because it is a picture of Christ and his church. It is no mistake. It is no cultural norm. It is no biological adaptation. It is purposeful, both for biological and spiritual reasons. We are created by God. He reveals us in that we are created by him, but he reveals to us that we are dependent upon him. We are dependent upon him. The next verse in Genesis 1 and 128 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. We are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon God for our existence. We are dependent upon God for those things that we need to maintain our existence. We were also dependent upon God of understanding how we ought to exist. Do you understand that? The, the fullness of our existence, both from like a metaphysical standpoint, why are we here, what is our purpose, but from a physical standpoint, the fact that our, the, the molecules of, of, of my throat are holding together such that they can vibrate and you can understand them, and the different bones inside of your ear are able to vibrate together so that you can then have a brain that is so complicated that science hasn't even figured out how it works completely yet, 
Every part of that is being held together and sustained sovereignly by God in this very moment. And then less important things, coffee and donuts. Less important things, like, like, like the, the, the heat from the sun and the water that we drink. Less important things like the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that creeps. Those are also being sustained and given to us by God. We are completely dependent. There's that joke about better living through chemistry. And whether it be a TV dinner or whether it be a modern uh, medical marvel, inevitably after five years or ten years or study, everyone always goes back to, you know what's probably better for us? The simple things, the organic things, the clean things. And so as much as we try to harness things in our image, we are always returning back to those simple things that God has given us. And we're not just dependent, again, upon the physical things. We're also dependent upon this mandate he's given us. How do humans flourish? How does mankind flourish? We flourish when we steward creation well, and we flourish when we love each other as family units, and those family units are then the building block for good, solid community. We're dependent upon God for that knowledge. We didn't come up with it on our own. But we also see in Revelation, or excuse me, we always see revealed to us, and it's fulfilled in Revelation, that we are sinners. God reveals to us that we are sinners. He gives Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 the command that any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. And we read about in Genesis chapter 3 about how Adam and Eve eat of that fruit, and the consequences of that are great. In Adam, all sin. Adam was our, our federal head. Adam was our representative. And so it's interesting. We talked about this theme of seed and how important that is and how, uh, how God could promise to, to Adam and Eve that from them a Savior would come. But also because of their sin, there is sin that spreads to all mankind. From a a biological perspective, it is very clear that all men and women descend from Adam and Eve. And there is also a spiritual standing in which we descend from our head Adam. And that is now a fallen standing. But it didn't take however many thousand years to go from the garden to today to point that out. As we talked about when we talked about the flood, One of the things that was said before the rains came and the floodwaters rose was that Yahweh saw the evil of man and how great it was on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's some strong language. Every thought, intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every only continual. This is the nature of fallen man. This is the nature of the rebel This is the nature of the one who is at enmity with God. This is something that we can identify with today. And as easy as it is to say, oh yeah, I see it out there. Oh yeah, I see it every time I turn on the TV, every time I read the newspaper, every time that something comes across my social media feed, I can acknowledge that every intent of the thoughts of the man's heart is only evil continually. But to be honest with ourselves and be, to be true with Scripture and to be, to, be, to be true with the reality of the way things work, we must also acknowledge 
that every intent of our hearts outside of the grace of God is only ever evil continually. You say, well, that's a really nice person. There's a nice person in rebellion to God. There's a really, really good person. A really, really good person in rebellion before God. All have sinned. And just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. No one is exempt. No one is outside of the fallenness of man. And this is clear and revealed in Genesis. So we, God reveals us to ourselves, that we are created, that we are dependent, that we are sinners. He reveals himself. He reveals us. But it doesn't stop there. God also reveals salvation. In Genesis, God reveals salvation. God reveals the fact that his people ought to anticipate a time when everything that was bent and everything that was undone gets straightened out and gets restored. All of the sad things get removed and all of the happy things return. All of the brokenness goes away and the completion comes back. Immediately on the heels of the fall, the taste of that fruit probably still lingering in their mouths, the curse being uttered to Adam and Eve, God also reveals the fact that Christ is coming. And of course, all Christ means is anointed, the, the special one, the, 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 the set-apart one, the Messiah, the Holy One, the one who has been promised is coming. Christ is the seed. In Genesis 3.15, it says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, and talking of the seed, he says, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is where we talk about the seed form, the embryonic form of salvation being revealed in Genesis. Is there a full Christology? That is to say, a full understanding of who Christ is in Genesis 3, 15. Were Adam and Eve able to write theological volumes about who Christ was going to be, what he was going to look like, what he was going to accomplish in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work that would exist? Was, was Adam and Eve aware of the nature of the atonement? No. What did they know? God, their covenant God, was going to provide salvation. That is what they knew. That is what the promise was. That was what was given to them. So this is often, often the big question. How were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved in the Old Testament? And this is not in the notes. It's actually not something that probably is going to be a very brief conversation, but we'll cover this very quickly because this is a great question. How was Adam saved? How was, was Adam saved? Was Adam out of luck? Was, was he waiting on a tabernacle? Was he waiting on a temple? Was he waiting on a cross? Well, we actually read this morning in Genesis 15 where salvation comes from. Remember in Genesis chapter 15, in this promise being fulfilled to Abram, that even though he had no heir, that he looked up to the, the stars in the sky and God said, just as many stars as you see will be your descendants. And like we talked about last week, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons of Father Abraham. I am one of them. Who else's? 
you are too. So let's all praise the Lord and the dance. How are people saved? It said in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. He believed the promises of salvation, of deliverance, of God supplying everything he needed. He believed in the idea of salvation. He believed in a savior. This is how people were saved in the Old Testament. They were saved in their faith, anticipating salvation, anticipating the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. It was never by the blood of bulls and goats. Be clear about that, church. Hebrews makes that infinitely clear. It was never by the blood of goat, bulls and goats. It was never by the sacrificial system. It was never by the temple. It is, it is, that was only ever and always a picture of the salvation that was being accomplished by the perfect sacrifice. That was what was being anticipated. Christ is how anyone is ever saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man is saved than by Jesus Christ. Christ is the seed, and so it's revealed in Genesis chapter 3. And we have the benefit of looking back at the entirety of, 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 of revealed scripture of the canon understanding this. They had to have faith. Faith in a promise being fulfilled. We look at this and we say, how are we sure that Christ was, was this? Well, there's countless examples that we see through Scripture, but in Colossians chapter 2, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in Him you have been filled, who is the head over rule and authority." And hear this, church, and talking about the work of Christ on the cross, this is what Paul says, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Christ crushed the head of rulers and authorities. These biblical categories that the Apostle Paul uses, not necessarily for human authorities, but for spiritual authorities. The seed of the serpent triumphed over by Christ. He is the head over all rule and authority. He is the one who is subjecting all things under his feet. And we see that beginning in, in seed form. But a seed, a deposit that is guaranteed because it is a deposit that's made by God and secured by God. So God reveals salvation in that Christ is the seed, and he also reveals salvation that Christ is the blessing, a blessing that spreads out wide. We talked about this last week in, in, in uh, Genesis 12. We could have looked at Genesis 15 and continued on what we touched upon in the beginning of this morning. Genesis 22, God says this to Abram, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Does that sound like we're going to kind of whimper and stumble and limp this world. Now there's triumph. We talked about that. That word was in Colossians passage. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Christ is victorious. And then God says this, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. Abram's obedience called out by God 
is the, not only the preservation of this righteous seed of the woman, but it's also a promise that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And this is just one of those amazing truths that we, we see the continuity of Scripture, where this promise that this seed was going to come from the woman, it is not a seed that is going to stay localized. It is a seed that is going to have repercussions and benefits across the entirety of humanity for all nations, which for a, a, someone who was receiving the book of Genesis, say it was someone coming out of Egypt, the idea of being nice to other nations for an Israelite coming out of Egypt probably wasn't first and foremost on their minds. It's let's kind of take care of our own business before we help out our neighbors. But this is something that is promised over and over and over again in Genesis. And again, even before they receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, they are promised they are going to be a kingdom of priests. A priest is not one who is supposed to stay by himself, not have any impact on the outside. And this promise to Abram that the blessing, Christ the blessing, his seed, the blessing, is going to be a blessing to the nations, is something we see Christ, the blessing himself, capitalize on and make so clear in one of the most popular parts of the New Testament where we get our base level marching orders as what we are to do as a church and as Christians. Jesus came to his disciples in Matthew 28 and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Note that, church. It's not just a, a spiritual kind of authority that Jesus has. It's an authority that's here on earth. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all I've commanded you, and behold, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. This promise of a seed who would be a blessing to all nations, Jesus is saying, it's here. For his disciples, they were getting this fulfillment and this wonderful ecstatic moment of realizing that this promise that was given to the patriarch Abraham, their forefather, had now come to fruition. We are the 2,000-year beneficiaries of this coming to fruition, and we still have work to do. Where can't the gospel go? And the answer is nowhere. Where will the gospel not have fertile soil? And the answer is nowhere. There's no zip code. There is no area code. There is not one square inch of this world where the gospel cannot go and will not go because Jesus himself promised it and a long line of promises going all the way back to Abram, saying that his seed will bless the nations. So in Genesis, God reveals salvation, that Christ is the seed, that Christ is the blessing. And how does this all work? Because in Genesis, God also reveals Christ. God reveals Christ. We see Christ in Genesis. It's not explicit. Again, there's no perfect Christology, no study of Christ, no perfect Trinitarian explanation of Father, Son, and Spirit, although we do see images of the Spirit in images of Christ, even in Genesis 1 through 3. But because we don't chunk apart the Word of God, we don't take one book and separate it from the rest, we understand that it's all holy, it's all inspired, it's given to us for the benefit of understanding these things. We see, looking back, that Christ as God, Christ as God, Christ as Savior, Christ as the one who will ultimately consummate all things is revealed in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 8, this is a, a, a wonderful passage. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, 
and we exist through him. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. It says elsewhere that all things were created for him and by him, and for him all things have been created. It is in Christ. Christ was the agent of creation. And so when we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and especially 1 and 2, and we think about the nature of creation, as biblical Christians, as Christians who are are led by the Spirit, who are indwelt by the Spirit, and who rely on the Holy Spirit for the Word of God, then we can't help but see images of Christ in creation. We see him as God also. We see Christ as Yahweh. We see Christ as this covenant God. In John chapter 8, in one of the most dramatic conflicts between Jesus and the authorities of his day, when they, they, they're criticizing him, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, Yes, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Christ puts himself back in this narrative. Christ puts himself back into the Genesis 1 through 15, the Genesis 1 through 22, the entirety of Genesis, the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of redemptive history. Christ puts himself in that narrative clearly and squarely. Do we do that, church? Do we put Christ where he puts himself? One of the most heretical and terrible things that we can do is an, an ancient heresy of drawing a, a sharp dividing line in that artificially placed spot that says the New Testament. The page d- split. One of the most dangerous things that we can do is take the red letters and lift them up over the black letters. This is a heresy and this is a danger the church has dealt with over and over and over again all the way back from the early church. And today, you get on YouTube and it's not very hard to turn on the radio, turn on the TV, turn on your computer and find a preacher that is telling you to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. And in doing so, you're not only cutting one arm off, you're cutting off the legs of the entirety of the story of redemption and the story of history and of who God is. Jesus puts himself squarely in the center of the narrative of the Old Testament story of redemption. To know Christ is to know the Bible. To know the Bible is to know Christ. We do not worship, the, the, we do not worship Scripture. We do not lift up Scripture to the level of who Jesus is. But what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will follow my commandments. And what Jesus does over and over and over again in his teaching ministry, in his preaching ministry, in his discipleship ministry, with his people, with his apostles, with his disciples, with anyone that would listen, is simply refer to over and over and over again the Old Testament, to the law, and quite frequently to Genesis itself. As we read Genesis, we get a fuller, greater, more wonderful picture of who God is who Christ is, and where salvation comes from. Our need for salvation, because we're a fallen people. The provision of our salvation, just because like everything else is provided for us. And the nature of our salvation, that it is Christ. It is not by anything that we can do. Just as Adam would have been inept to sustain himself, if not for the gracious provisions given to him before the fall by God, 
And just as Adam and his progeny were completely dependent upon God, not only for physical but also spiritual needs after the fall, we too, in our fallen state, are completely dependent upon the provision of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Well, church, I want to close with, with, with this text from Revelation. It seems very um, appropriate after talking about Genesis so much and talking about it, how it sends shockwaves not only throughout the entirety of human history, but certainly through Scripture to go to the book of Revelation when we're talking about how in Genesis we get the seed form revelation that there will be one who comes to us in perfect imminence and perfect presence who is God. As John gets introduced to the idea that he's going to be writing this very dramatic letter, this very dramatic work in Revelation, it says this in Revelation 1, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were like white, like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Whenever this happens in Scripture to angels, they always say, get up. Don't do that. But here, that doesn't happen. This figure allows it to happen. And he places his right hand on me saying, do not fear. I am the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega, the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. This brilliant presentation of the presence of Jesus Christ to John to us, to his people, illustrates who Jesus is. Where you have a garden that has been walled off and been shut off to mankind because of sin with a cherub of flaming fire standing in front of it so no one can come in with with this, this serpent being deprived of his legs, slithering away, plotting and scheming and cursing death upon the seed of the woman and all of her descendants. The seed of the woman presents himself to us as having a sword that is stronger than the sword of any angel, of having a sword that is stronger than the sword of any enemy, of having a heel that, although bruised, is stronger than any serpent, of the one who is first and last, the very same name, the very same title, the very same superlative taken by Yahweh himself in the Old Testament, Christ takes on himself. The one who is dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. So that there could be no mistake as to who is being talked about here other than the one who was crucified and rose again, having the keys of death and of Hades. Allowing, privileging, graciously electing his people to join him in a restoration of all that was broken, all that was hurt, all that was bent. Church, you can't read Genesis without seeing who God is, who we are, and where our salvation comes from. The perfect person of Jesus Christ.
promised, come, and coming again. And in many ways, that's what this table is about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. And so this morning, we invite you to Christ's table. If you know him, if his blood is covering you because of what was foreordained in eternity passed by the Father, what was accomplished on that cross as his foot, bloody and nailed through, crushed the head of the serpent, and what was applied to you in space and time, in that moment by the Holy Spirit, where that salvation was given to you as a gracious gift, this is the table that you are invited to. Yet at the same time, we are invited with a few provisos. One is that you do so in a worthy manner. This doesn't mean perfection. This doesn't mean that the, the, this morning, the ride to church, or even the last 45 minutes have been perfect. It means that you humbly and, and with, with great reverence and also consideration come to receive these elements because they are potent. What they represent is real and what they represent is significant. So my encouragement to you is that you come and you receive these, but you take these few moments as you come and receive them to come before the Lord in humility and reverence, knowing that he is holy. So I'll ask John and Justin to come up and lead the last song. I'll pray and then we'll come and receive the elements and take them back to our seats and take them together. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the blessing that comes from being able to hear it. We thank you that it is a means of grace to not only read it, but to hear it. This is something that you have ordained for the building up of your people, of your church. Lord, we thank you that, again, the distillation of our purpose is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. I pray that we do that, but not of our own uh, cleverness, of our own thoughts, of our own creativity, but it is solely and squarely on the revealed word given to us by the apostles, inspired by your spirit and providentially preserved so that we may have it today. And in doing so, we know your spirit, we know your son, and we know you. Bless us as we come to this table. Draw us nearer to you. And if there be anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray that through your word and through your spirit, you will draw them close to you. You will quicken them. They will repent. They will put their faith in you so they can celebrate the coming of Messiah and the anticipation of your return where we will have this meal with you forever. We ask all these things in the holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.